You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa, from the series, Doctrine That Goes the Distance. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. We're in week 11 of our current series called Doctrine That Goes the Distance. I'll ask you to turn to Acts chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me just kind of lay some background for today's study. It's on pneumatology. Say that word with me. Pneumatology, big word, simply means the study of the Holy Spirit or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I think as I've kind of worked through this doctrine, and by the way, every week, my heart, I keep thinking uh, that current week is the one I'm most passionate about, and I just get so ramped for that doctrine. And then the next week comes, I'm like, no, I'm most ramped about this one, you know? And I've just really just um, been jazzed all week about so much in here, and I can't share it all with you. I've got to really make quick tracks to get in what I, what I want to say. But um, in, in the study of God's Holy Spirit, I've been convicted that, that I, put, I would not have been a very good disciple in the first 11. I know that. I'm not sure I'm a good one now. My heart pants for God. I, I desire deeply to follow Him. But I'm like you. I, I mean, you have your struggles, right? One of mine is that I despise and hate the four-letter word wait, W-A-I-T. And and that causes me spiritual anguish and grief a lot. Waiting is part of God's economy. I feel like the crosshairs of His sanctifying fire are always upon my patience issues, you know? Maybe you row that boat as well. So as I studied this doctrine, I noticed that in two accounts of Christ explaining The necessity of the Holy Spirit, this word wait is in there. I'm like, oh, and that's when I begin to realize I would not have been a really good early disciple. In fact, in Acts 1 is where we find the first one. You're there by now, right? Acts chapter 1. Let me read you four or five verses from this chapter. I'll read from Acts. I'll go to Luke and read from there. My goal today is to kind of set the groundwork with these two passages. And then I want to kind of take you through a journey through lots of scriptures as we see the Holy Spirit at work and why he's so necessary. But notice, first of all, this first one in Acts. Luke here is recording the event after it happened. He's rehearsing this as he's writing part two of his gospel. He wrote Luke. He's writing part two now. It's called the book of Acts. He records that while Jesus was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart. Key word there, ordered. It wasn't an option. That lets me know they probably struggled with waiting as well, right? He didn't ask, he didn't suggest, he ordered them to to not depart from Jerusalem, but to, say it with me, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, it's John 14, 15, and 16 in the Gospels, that's where most of the information about this promise is found. He says, John baptized you with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So until that day comes i.e. Pentecost, when, when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, you're to wait in Jerusalem. I would have struggled there because this was right on the same time he gave the mission of making disciples of all nations, taking the gospel of the kingdom to those who've not heard. That excites me. We love that part. Why do you want us to wait? Let's get to work. You, you ever been there? I have. But his words to them were to wait for the Holy Spirit. This actual event is recorded for us in Luke 24, verses 44 to 49. Here it is when it actually happened as recorded by Luke. So he records it twice, lets me know waiting was something that was pretty important. Waiting for the Holy Spirit. Here's how Luke records it, 
in real time. Verse 44, Jesus said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins, I mean, you can feel the building and the climax, can't you? Should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Yeah, let's go do it. I'm all in. You're witnesses of these things. Yes, I can't wait to proclaim them. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father. We're glad about that upon you. But stay in the city until then when you are clothed with power from on high. So he's like, man, I'm excited about the mission, but, but don't go yet. I need you to wait in Jerusalem. I need you to just stay in the city. Now, have, you, have you ever asked yourself this question? Why did they need to wait? And you know the answer, it's in the text. Because the Holy Spirit had not come yet. He was promised, but he hadn't arrived. And so when Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit came days later at Pentecost. So it must be, here's the the conclusion we can draw, it must be that their mission, as important, watch this church, as important as it was, was impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. Which lets me know something. The Holy Spirit of God isn't a luxury. He is a necessity. Will you say this with me? The Holy Spirit of God isn't a what? He is a... Which is why I said to you earlier, the mission Christ gave them, though important, was impossible without the Holy Spirit. Here's why I've worded it that way, and here's why I want to drive this home today. Because I tend to think, though we never admit it, and though we never theologically even affirm this thought, I tend to think in a lot of churches, uh, of kind of, of our kind, so to speak, the Holy Spirit is kind of considered a bonus. It's like, a, like an add-on. Like we would never say He's the forgotten God. We don't want to say that. But we, we would say, yeah, the Holy Spirit, man, that's, that's awesome. In fact, let's pray for the power of the Holy Spirit as if we could still have a good service, we could still minister well, but if the Holy Spirit came, it'd be even better. Actually, I think that's wrong thinking. If the Holy Spirit's not there, it's of no value at all. Jesus said, "If without me, you can do nothing. See, I think we've fallen into this mindset that the Holy Spirit's like, an, like extra credit. We've got God and Jesus, that's, that's enough. We, we love God, we'll preach Jesus, and then if the Holy Spirit were to, to really move, and man, that'd just be icing on the cake. The Holy Spirit's not icing on the cake. The Holy Spirit's essential necessary, so necessary that Jesus told them in the same verbiage as his all-important mission that you have to wait for the Holy Spirit because it's impossible for you to do this without him. Today, I want to open that box a little bit. and Let's just kind of peer into how necessary then is the Holy Spirit because I think we can prove from Scripture that not only was the Holy Spirit necessary for those first 11, so necessary that they had to wait before they even embarked on their mission, I want to show you chronologically how the Holy Spirit's necessary for every single part of your life. And that without the Holy Spirit, you would be dead, both physically, spiritually, blind, lost, and that when Christ comes, your body would stay in the grave and not get resurrected if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. 
I want to make a strong case for the necessity, not the luxury, of the Holy Spirit. So that when you leave today, you'll, you'll erase any type of add-on or bonus mentality. But you will leave thinking, man, I've got to keep in step with the Spirit. It's necessary. Now, a couple of things first about this statement. Some assumptions we're making. Within this statement that I draw from Acts 1, Luke 24 are a couple of things you need to know. First of all, that we believe doctrinally the Holy Spirit is a person, more technically the third person of the Trinity. Notice I didn't say it is a necessity. I didn't say the force is a necessity. What did we say? He. And all through Scripture, the Bible references the Holy Spirit in personal pronoun ways. And even in Romans 5, connects the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God to the Holy Spirit. And so we believe doctrinally, fundamentally, theologically, the Holy Spirit is God. So the personage of the Holy Spirit matters in understanding why He's a necessity, because let's admit this, God is necessary, amen? But how does God, and I don't don't want to use the word prove, but how does God manifest His necessity and His power? He does this in what we call the the active presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's some theological language for you I want to grasp. The Holy Spirit is the avenue, the mechanism, the, the person by which God the Father displays His power in the world and in the church. Okay? That does not mean that God is not omnipresent. We believe and know that God is everywhere. He sees all things. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent, Right? But the fact that God is everywhere, the fact that He's omnipresent, doesn't mean that in every place He's always actively, visibly working. Did you know that? For instance, New Testament. Jesus Christ was in a location at one point, there, present physically, but He said He did not do many mighty works there. So though He was present, there was a sense in which He refused to work actively and visibly. You can read more about that and why. And so we learned this, that there is a difference between the omnipresence of God and the active presence of God. And it's the Holy Spirit that in certain situations and places will manifest God's power and presence. We call that the manifest or active presence of God in the world and in the church. You've seen this happen. When someone gets saved, the Holy Spirit convicts them, regenerates them, and they express their need of a Savior, and they repent and are saved. That's the manifest active presence of God. Was God there before that? Yes. But suddenly the Holy Spirit's power enabled a, a visible event to occur. And you saw it. It took place. Wow. God showed up, we say sometimes, right? You've seen this when folks are healed supernaturally. You've seen this in other ways. God meets needs. So it's the Holy Spirit of God that is the avenue by which God manifests His active presence. And so we say the Holy Spirit's power is God's active presence. He is a person. And so here's some assumptions that we need to make sure we have our feet on. The person of God's powerful presence is necessary. That's what we're saying when we say the Holy Spirit is necessary. We're saying what's necessary is the powerful presence of God. Okay? How necessary? Let me walk you through some areas in which Without the Holy Spirit's power, they wouldn't be here. They wouldn't exist. It wouldn't happen. First of all, creation. And I mean not only creation in the general sense from Genesis 1-2. Here's Genesis 1-2 that 
After God created the heavens and the earth, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word there is brooding. It means kind of uh, lingering. You might use the word nesting. Same word used in Deuteronomy to describe how God's Spirit was hovering over the children of Israel in the, in the desert. Now, what I think is going on in Genesis 1-2 is this. There's this created universe, this world, but it's the Spirit of God, the powerful presence of God, that then was the creative force or, or agent or active uh, way God brought life to the planet. Because prior to that, it was without form. It was void. There was darkness, right? Genesis 1-1, one, 1-2. One, one, but as the Spirit of God hovered, nested, brooded, life comes. Now, that's still God, by the way. He's co-eternal, co-equal with God. But it's the mechanism, the avenue by which God's power is displayed. So, so, so do you see what I'm saying? In creation, God's power is displayed through the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, in just this one summer series, we have proven and seen how in creation... All three persons of the Trinity were involved. The Logos was with God. Nothing was made that was made without the Logos, John 1. Here, the Holy Spirit of God was involved in the, in the, in the life-giving activity of God's power being exerted upon the planet as revealed in the six days. And who created the heavens and earth? God did. So God, the three-in-one being, created everything, and yet the three-in-one being, every single person of the Trinity had parts to play in creation. It's amazing. So creation was... Um, the Holy Spirit is necessary for creation. I not only mean that generally speaking, but I also mean that individually. We'll go back to that slide where it says creation. You ought to jot down these verses, maybe take a picture of this slide. I've got several like this. You might want to have your phone ready and just kind of uh, take some snapshots because Job 33, Job 34 talk about how our life, we were created by God's Spirit. His breath gives us life. Psalm 104 talks about the Spirit of God creating us. So clear verses about you individually. In fact, you would not be here. Church, listen very carefully. You would not be here if the Holy Spirit of God had not given you life. In fact, that's true of the very first man. When God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The word breath and the word spirit are, are very similar, if not the same thing in the Hebrew language. That doesn't mean that God put his Holy Spirit in Adam. It means that the active life-giving force of God is his spirit. And when he breathed into man, he breathed into him life. What brought life to creation? God's Holy Spirit. And what brought life to you? God's Holy Spirit. That's why I can say to you boldly, but accurately, if it weren't for God's Holy Spirit, physically you would be dead. I can back that up in Job 34, which that verse actually says that if God would remove His Spirit, all life would perish. So there's a lot we can unpack here. I don't have time for it. Just know this. The Holy Spirit was necessary for creation, generally speaking, and also individually in your life. Not just physically, but also spiritually. We say the Holy Spirit is necessary for regeneration as well. This is the spiritual creation God does in our hearts. Remember Nicodemus would come to the Lord and say, Hey, how can, uh, you know, I, um, like, who are you and how can I be like you, and I want to know what's going on with why you're teaching and doing miracles. I think Nicodemus is wondering how he could physically attain to what Jesus had. And Jesus says, what I'm talking about and what I'm doing is not a physical issue. It is a spiritual issue, and it's brought about by the Spirit. You must be born from above. 
Now, we use the phrase born again. But Jesus made it very clear to Nicodemus that what he's looking for is not a physically attained issue. It is a spiritually attained issue. And how does one attain regeneration? How does one attain being born again? According to the verse, it comes from the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, let me just rattle your cage for a bit. You need to wrestle this through later than in this message. But in this same passage, you see he talks about the wind. He's comparing the wind to the Holy Spirit. He says, no one knows where it comes from. You don't know, you know, you can't hear it sound. all, the, Or you can hear it sound. You can kind of feel it. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. The Spirit is like the wind that it, it will blow where it wills. And sometimes you can't always figure out how the Holy Spirit's wind blows. Amen? But make no mistake, the wind of the Spirit blows and it brings life to people. Now we know from Scripture that the ordained means of preaching the gospel, of sharing our faith, those are all things God uses. But what enables those things to bring life? It's the Holy Spirit. And no one, listen very carefully church, no one is born again. You could use the word saved. No one becomes a Christian Apart from the Holy Spirit's power. No one. So Todd, how does, what does that look like? Well, I like to say it like this, and I wrote about this in my book called uh, Different, Not Just Better, that when the Holy Spirit regenerates someone, He gives them the faith to believe in that moment, and then they respond with that faith to the news they've heard, and they're converted, and then they're justified and adopted. All those things happen in split-second moments. But what precedes the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration is what I believe is the work of the Holy Spirit's conviction. That's the third thing the Holy Spirit does and is necessary for. So in real time and space, it looks like this. You're kind of, let's say, hearing the gospel, you're in a service, or this is when you're lost. And you realize, wow, I'm lost, and I, and I can never be reconciled to God unless I believe in Christ. And you start to feel convicted about that. That's the Holy Spirit working And then suddenly you feel this compulsion to respond to that message, to believe that's the Holy Spirit regenerating your heart. And then you respond, I believe in Christ. I accept the free gift of eternal life, not the wages of sin, that's death. That's conversion. All of that is empowered and generated by the Holy Spirit. No one comes to God on their own. Isaiah 64, 7, no one can rouse himself to take hold of you. So even in your pursuit of God, church, listen, this is theologically significant. Even in your pursuit of God, you didn't wake up one day and on your own good measure thought, you know what, I need to improve my my eternal destiny. I need to kind of figure out this spiritual destination thing. I think I'll, I'll seek after God. The Bible says no one seeks after God. Only the Holy Spirit must have roused you, convicted you to begin to think about those things. That's why I can say to you, clearly and scripturally, if it weren't, And my heart's really emboldened right now, so please listen. If it weren't for the Holy Spirit, you would be dead physically and spiritually. He is the life-giving avenue from God. So do you see why I'm passionate this morning to make sure you understand? The Holy Spirit's not a luxury. (laughs) There's no bonus or add-on here. This is vital. We would be dead. We would perish were it not for the convicting the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit of God. John lays this out quite clearly. I'll just mention this verse as I move on. Here he says that when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, this is Christ promising the Holy Spirit, he will what? He will 
convict the world of three things for sure. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. But understand that his, one of his roles is to convict. So, so we see these things are necessary. These things are happening. And the Holy Spirit's necessary to their occurring. Creation, regeneration, conviction. A few more for you. Illumination. That just simply means the eyes of our understanding are open. Several of these verses talk about how uh, Paul would pray for those new believers that they would have insight into God's will, that the Spirit would open their minds to things. Here's one in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, one of the verses that makes this just uh, crystal clear for us. We've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might what? Understand. So illumination is the is the concept of understanding God's Word. Now, let me clarify what that means and what it doesn't mean. And I'm going to take a little risk here because I know God could do this through His Holy Spirit, but this is not the primary way God works. Illumination doesn't mean that God will tell you something that you don't know. Like, let's say that uh, Aaron comes to me and says, Todd, what happened in January of 1735? I say, Aaron, hold on. Holy Spirit's going to tell me. So I go up here and I'm... I look into the magic ball of the Holy Spirit, and in a soothsaying kind of way, I say, in January of 1735, the Holy Spirit just told me that. That's not how the Holy Spirit illuminates. Now, again, I want to hedge that a bit, because could God do that? God can do whatever He wants. He's God. I'm not. You're not either. Amen? Come on, people. Work with me on this one. He's God. You're not, and I'm not. He could do whatever, but in the normal understanding of the Scriptures and of our experience, Illumination isn't God telling you what you don't know. It's God helping you understand what you do know. You ever read the Bible? You're like, man, I know this, but I don't get it. You ever done that? I've done that. I do that every week. Like, man, what does that mean? You, 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 you kind of refer to a commentary, which is a good idea. Nothing wrong with that. God enables men to help us. You might even actually use the Internet. You know, something like that could even help you, right? But you're, you're searching. You're looking. You're asking your leaders, your pastors. Your... But then in a, in a flash of, I wouldn't say brilliance, in a flash of illumination, one day while you're praying and reading, it's just like, oh, that's what that means. And you connect it to Scripture. You see a previous verse. You look at the context. And suddenly it's just, it's Windex clear. You're like, oh, I get that. Guess what that is? That's your built-in commentary. That's the Holy Spirit of God illuminating your mind to help you understand the things freely given to you by God. He didn't tell you something you didn't know, but he helped you know and understand what you really already knew. So do you hear that okay? And that's why it's important as you study the word that you are praying at the same time. Lord, reveal your word to me. I'd encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 2. It's a whole chapter about the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would boldly say this to you, that you have the mind of Christ. Todd, that's a, that's a big thing to say. Well, that's the point of 1 Corinthians 2. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. So we can know what's in the heart of God. You have a built-in commentary. So read the scriptures, asking the Lord to illuminate your mind. I, I could list several times in which I've just really wondered and just kept praying. And then God just, through the context, just began to open up the scriptures. It's a beautiful experience that's, necess- that's occurring because of the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, we'd be blind to all God's left for us. So the Holy Spirit is necessary for illumination. The Holy Spirit is necessary for identification. This is how we're known as children of God, the Holy Spirit. Church, listen very carefully to this. This is going to tie into the next one as well. But you're not primarily known as a Christian because of what you do. Now, some of you think that. You think, well, no, Todd, it's because of how I act and how I live. 
And so they know I'm a Christian. No, you're actually known to be a Christian because the Holy Spirit does in you. And then as that is seen, watch this, listen very carefully, as not, when that's seen, the fruit of the Spirit, not the works of the flesh, Galatians 5, people say, man, what's happening to you? Your life's overflowing with all kinds of organic things, this fruit. It's not something you're producing. It's something God's growing. You start saying, yeah, the Holy Spirit's in me. I belong to God, and God's just working me over. He's producing fruit. And so you don't exemplify works of the flesh. You instead display fruit of the Spirit. When those those things are seen, we are showing that the Holy Spirit is in us, and then we're identified as children of God. The Holy Spirit's like your name tag. Do you know that? Like, how do I know who they belong to? Well, look at their life. It's showing that there's fruit of the Spirit. They must belong to, ha- they must have the Spirit, so they must belong to God. I love the, the verb in this verse. We're led by the Spirit, so we are the sons of God. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So God's Spirit is affirming as He grows fruit in us, as He sanctifies and produces us. That we belong to God. Isn't that a joyfully, delightful feeling and experience? Isn't that gloriously exhilarating? When in a moment of your life, you realize that the churning of the flesh against the spirit. Listen, church, listen. That the struggle of the flesh and the spirit, that the two natures warring, as tough as that is, is actually a signal that you belong to God. Man, hallelujah. Think of the eternal devastating result if you never knew the struggle of the spirit and the flesh. If all you knew were works of the flesh, if all you knew was like, I don't care what I do. Man, I love sin. I'm going to stay in sin. If you never sense the struggle of the spirit against your flesh, the spirit identifying you, affirming, hey, you belong to God. That's not right. Let's leave that. And if that is your experience, if you've never known the pull of the Spirit out of sin, quit pretending you don't belong to God. Because the Bible says that the Spirit of God leads the children of God. That's how we know we are the children of God. It's our identifying marker, not only to ourselves and others, but it's our preserving, I would even say identifying mark, to God as well. Now watch what I'm saying here. The Holy Spirit is necessary for our preservation. Ephesians 1 says that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a seal. S-E-A-L. That not only means identifying stamp, all right, but it means a preserving type of factor. Notice the verse here. We're given the Holy Spirit. He's our sealing agent. So there's a protection going on. There's a preservation factor happening. There's also identifying factor. All that is kind of a deposit so that when Christ comes again, what will he do? He'll identify those he has marked out. He'll know you belong to him because of his spirit. Now watch this, church. He won't know you belong to him because you're living good. Even though those who are born of the spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh and they have the fruit of the spirit, yes. But the the source of that is really the identifying mark to others and to God. And so when Christ returns, he's looking for what? Who has his Holy Spirit? That's his claiming action. That means you're his possession. And when he comes, all those who have the Holy Spirit, we mark his possession. He will take hold of you for the praise of his glorious grace.
How have you been able to go from the moment he saved you till the moment he comes? And how have you not given into sin, been eaten up by evil? How have you not fallen away? What empowers all of that? It isn't your good works. It's the Holy Spirit who keeps you from falling and enables Jesus Christ to present you faultless and blameless. It's all empowered by the Holy Spirit. He preserves us. He's the seal over us, protecting, guarding, identifying us, producing in us fruit, the others see in us God, and then showing God, hey, this one belongs to you. So, so watch what we've done so far. And hopefully in just a few short minutes compared to other weeks, we've gone from the creation of the world, fast forwarded to creation of your life, and then to God's saving of you, and now... We're moving along chronologically that the Holy Spirit has been necessary at every moment. So he's saved you. He's sealed you. He's marked you. What's he doing now in these years where we're waiting for him to come and get possession of us? He is sanctifying us. So we see he's necessary. Watch this. Creation, regeneration, conviction, illumination, identification, preservation, can't believe it and forget one. And now sanctification. This word simply means to be set apart. It means and, and denotes the idea of God progressively developing us spiritually. Say the word with me, sanctification. That's all it means. It's the process of growth. When God saves you, you're not suddenly everything you should be. And neither will you be ever until he comes again. So between when he saves you and when he comes again, we're in this process of what the Bible calls sanctification or being set apart unto God as his possession. And many folks think, well, God saved me by his grace, but now this sanctification thing, it's up to me. I've got to be the one kind of fueling this. But Paul actually corrected that in Galatians. In fact, he did that in a rhetorical way. Look at Galatians 3.3 here. He says, are you so foolish, Galatians, that you began by the what? You began by the Spirit... Why do you think now you can be matured or perfected or sanctified by the flesh? Why do you think it's your works that fuel your progressive spiritual development when it wasn't your works that saved you? So church, understand this. We are saved by grace and we are sanctified by grace. Amen? Now, does grace produce in us effort? Yes. Grace has never been opposed to effort, but grace is always opposed to earning. And so grace produces work. It produces effort, but not to earn something, but out of love for something. It's always God's grace that fuels and motivates every bit of our salvation, every bit of our sanctification. Now let me give you some more insight into sanctification here. I think it's important that I pause here and talk about this for a bit. Because often we hear sanctification, we're just not sure like, okay, that's a big word. I sound kind of smart when I say it, but I don't know what it looks like and what it does. I look at sanctification like a battery in our life. Okay, And the battery has two terminals, correct? A positive one and a negative one. I think sanctification is like that. Two things are happening in your life on a consistent basis in regards to sanctification. First of all, the negative terminal. God is empowering you through His Holy Spirit not to sin. The Christian experience, and we'll back this up from 1 John, Romans 6. This will startle some of you. But the Christian experience is designed to be one where... When God saves us, we increasingly know less of sin because we're not mastered by it, and we know more of Christ. Our obedience to Christ increases. Our obedience and mastery to sin decreases. Does that make sense? 
That's the goal. That's what he's after. And so sanctification is sinning less. It is not being sinless. That'll happen when our bodies are resurrected. But until that, we are increasing and growing in our knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are, are obeying Christ more. How is that possible? By the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. That's how we do not gratify the desires of the flesh. And I just need to be very frank with you as your pastor. If all you know is a life that gratifies the flesh, the Bible would say to you, you do not have the Spirit of God. And if you do not have the Spirit of God, you're not what? A child of God. That's how we're identified. So it's not that I'm trying to get you to act moral or to do good so you can fool everyone. I want you to think about something far deeper. If all you've ever known is a life chasing your own personal, selfish, evil, sinful desires, if that's all you've ever known, there's never been conviction otherwise. For the sake of your soul's eternal destiny, stop pretending. You don't belong to God. You do not have His Spirit because those who have His Spirit, they don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. In other words, there's a decreasing sense of sin's mastery and an increasing sense of God's ownership. That's part of sanctification. Not sinning. Another part is the positive terminal and that is that we are serving the Lord. We're serving others. Um, it's a huge thread in the New Testament. In fact, here's what um, Paul would say to the believers in Corinth about serving. He talked about spiritual gifts. And he says, we are given those spiritual gifts, and they're empowered by one and the same, who? Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Paul's clear assumption in the New Testament is this. We are given gifts, what I would call supernatural enablements by the Holy Spirit, to actually serve the church, and the Lord. That's one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit is in us and that he empowers us towards. So that's the positive terminal. Now, I think on, this, on these two fronts, often the church gets off the rails. Uh, we're, we're, very, uh, we're too individually focused in America, Christianity, and we often lump serving the Lord in with other hobbies. And this morning, I just want to kind of obey the scriptures when it says that we're to spur each other on to love and good works. I want to kind of poke at you a little bit in regards to serving, okay? Because I think all of you know we shouldn't sin and the Lord's Spirit can empower that. I think you know that. But just in the same way that the negative terminal exists, there's a positive terminal. And God's Spirit will empower you to serve His church. And there are a host of ways to do that. And in the last few weeks, I'm just going to be really frank with you here, and we can debate this and dialogue about it. I have no problem with that, but, but as a leader of this church, one of the things I want to do is prompt you to thinking about how am I serving the body of Christ. I find it um, incompatible is a good way to put this. I find it incompatible that in a church with 800 plus people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, profess to be filled with the Holy Spirit, a little more correct way to say that, and called to be members in this body, that there are places in our church that are still left without adequate service and, and attention. I find that incompatible. Now, you're going to probably get a little antsy here and nervous. You may start looking down and you might feel your heart beat fast and your palms get sweaty. I'll leave that to you in the Holy Spirit, okay? 
But I think about the various ministers we have in this church that minister to each other, that reach out to our community. And I know sometimes you get in places where it's like, man, I've got a lot going on. I've got, you know, 14 teams I'm coaching. I've got three dance clubs I'm in. And I've got four things at school. So doing one thing at church, I just don't know if I can get there, Todd. It's like we think we have more inner power to serve in ways, and I'm not saying those are bad things, but to do things for ourselves than we do really to serve the body of Christ. And I kind of want to challenge that. In fact, I would say to you, in all transparency but boldness, I don't think there should be a single area of this church that lacks a volunteer who's serving in it. If God has truly equipped this body with the gifts needed to meet the needs of this church and this community, well, why are we lacking in areas where services need? I just would put that before you. Again, we can dialogue, we can debate. I'm open for that. What I don't want to do is lead with, with fear. And I want to challenge some of you who are kind of on the sidelines, who are kind of eating the meals but not working the kitchen, who are enjoying the benefits of the bank account but really aren't chipping in on the investment side. I kind of want to put before you that God's Spirit will empower you to serve beyond the understanding and limits of your own physical flesh. Did you know that? See, here's what I hear mostly. Oh, Todd, again, I got these three or four teams I'm coaching, and my my daughter's involved in, you know, seven or eight dance clubs, and I got every week, and I got to be somewhere, and then I've got to... And we list all these things we're doing, like, like, man, we're just, we're throwing ourselves into this family idolatry look almost. But then the church asks for one thing. We're like, hey, man, what what do you think I am? Made Made of steel here? Like an endless energy? No, but you have the Holy Spirit who can empower you to serve in ways that, you, that are unimaginable at times. Who can give your inner man strength when your outer man's wasting away. Who can cause you to love your enemies. You see, we don't serve out of the power of the flesh, church. Just feel, feel spurred right now, okay? We don't serve out of the power of the flesh. We serve in the power of the Spirit. Which is why I think it's incompatible that a church who says we're filled with the Spirit would have... Places where there's just needs that aren't being met. Here's a few of them. And again, we can dialogue and debate this. I would like that. We are always shooting for 50 lighthouses. We feel as the leaders of the church that 50 lighthouses is a, is a, is a goal that enables the best kind of shepherding. We're right now about 42, 44 lighthouses. Some of you need to step up and lead the lighthouse. Some of you are hiding in your groups. You're comfortable. You love it. I had one in my group this past year. And I pushed them. I prodded them. I kicked them in the shins. It's like, dude, you, and he, he and his wife are the life of our group. They're fun. And I said, you need to bring this kind of life to other folks in our church. You're a good leader. I essentially tried to kick him out of our group. He was at 8.30. I told him that. I hope that, that he'll take that step and that folks will sign up. That's what we need. God's using him. It's awesome to watch. And some of you are the same way. You're hiding. You love your group. And I'm not faulting that. But at some point, a group that is close can become closed. It's the attack of the letter D. And when a group that is close becomes closed, it's all because of selfishness. What it takes is someone to say to that group, hey, you know what? I love this group, but man, there's folks in our church who have other needs, needed shepherding. We need to get to 50. I'm I'm just going to step out and start a group. Go through orientation, do it the right way, but... I'm glad you're close. I'm trying to help you not become closed. And that usually takes someone who's willing to say, you know what, it's going to be a lot of work. Yeah, but the Holy Spirit will empower me to do it. 
And trust that it's not just a hobby or another event. We're talking about working for the Lord in His vineyard. Our children's ministry right now asks for the latest numbers. And we'd all say, yeah, raising our kids matters. Training them is, is important. And we put tons of energy into their dance marathons and their dance clubs and their sports teams. You know we do. We walk that road. All right, we're taking our last one to college today. We're dropping her off this evening. We'll come back alone. So for 27 years, we've walked the road of trying to manage sports, clubs, school. I'm not speaking out of a vacuum. It's amazing how we think, wow, we can give all that energy to that. But when it comes to the church, we sometimes think, well, they can find someone else to work with the kids. Our kids matter here too. This training matters. We have 28, excuse me. 27 openings in our Awana program on Wednesday. Our leadership feels like it's a necessary and important ministry. Again, we can dialogue and debate about what's necessary. I'm down with that. But our leadership has set in motion a number of programs we feel like would meet the needs of this body. I think we can staff them. I don't think it's too much to ask for this church to meet every single opening with service. I don't think it's too much to ask. I think it's incompatible to assume that a church of 800 plus couldn't do that. 27 openings on Wednesday night for Awana workers. There are five to seven openings in uh, uh, preschool at 10.30. I get that right, Becky? Okay, first birth through preschool, about five at 10.30. There's about two at 8.30, and there's only two openings in elementary. So we're going to say 10 to 12 openings on a monthly basis in our children's ministry, weekly basis in our children's ministry. I can't help but think there's 10 or 12 folks in the church who could feel that. I, I just believe that. We're filled with God's Spirit. We're empowered by God Himself. So I'm not trying to leverage you or guilt you. You probably feel that way. You're thinking, man, He's coming at us strong. I am coming at you strong. But here's why. We're not an organization who's just signing up to run a YMCA. We're not meeting once a month for, a cl- for a lunch at the Rotary. We're God's body. And I just, my suspicion, my hankering is, you like that word hankering? is that where God leads a church to invest and develop ministries that reach and help people, he will staff them with that church. It's incompatible to me that we are consistently having areas that just lack help. I think there's folks sitting in the shadows, enjoying the meal, and not getting in the kitchen. I'm calling you today to get in the kitchen. Is that all right? Join us. Help us make the meals, eat the dinner, and clean up the mess. <laughs> Can you? You say, Todd, you don't know my schedule. Well, actually, I probably do know your schedule. And I'm here to say to you that what, who will empower you in all of that is the Holy Spirit of God. Trust Him with your schedule. Trust Him with your energy. Trust Him with your life. And say, Lord, yeah, I'll lay treasures up in heaven where moth and rust don't go up. I'm, I'm, I'm given. I'm going to serve. Yeah, I'm in. Count me in. And look, just see what God might do in ways you could never imagine through his incredible power. I've ranted enough about that. I need to move on. Any questions first, right? (laughs) No, I'm kidding you on that. So sanctification, it's a power not to sin. It's power to serve. And all of that is fueled and driven by the Holy Spirit. Don't underestimate your ability to serve the Lord in this church. Last thing, I've got to make this quick. The Holy Spirit's necessary for glorification. Remember I told you that if it weren't for the Holy Spirit, that not only would we be spiritually and physically dead, we would perish, we'd, have, we'd be blind, we'd have no understanding, we'd be lost, but I said that your body would stay in the grave. Here's the proof of that. 
that when the Lord does come back, if the Holy Spirit were not empowering resurrection, then your mortal body would not be raised. Because who raised Christ from the dead? The Holy Spirit's power did. And so when he comes back, that same Holy Spirit will raise your mortal body. Keyword there, your physical body that's decayed. He'll raise it up to meet your soul in the air. And then you'll have a renewed, glorified body. If the Holy Spirit is not working and empowering that, then it's just a soul in the air with no body to meet it. Now watch this, church. From creation to glorification, what's the avenue, the mechanism of power that God has sovereignly chosen to make sure all of this happens? Say it with me. The Holy Spirit. That's why I say to you, He is not a luxury. He is a necessity. You need the Holy Spirit every step of the way. Which helps us understand why Paul would say in Galatians 5, keep in step with the Spirit. Why? Because you need His life-giving power every single step. He is a necessity. May God build into our church a hunger for the power of the Holy Spirit. For the filling of the Holy Spirit. For the anointing. For the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There were no questions at 8.30, so I'm going to bypass the question format here just because I know of time. And simply show you one last picture that I think helps us with our motivation. Because I could lay that out for you. and Maybe you feel persuaded, convinced in one way. I don't want to rely just on, 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 I don't want to say my ability, but I don't want us to rely just on maybe seeing what God is doing through the Holy Spirit in our own situation, like from our creation to glorification. If you in any way are thinking this morning, well, is it really that important? Did you know the Holy Spirit of God empowered every aspect of the life of the Son of God? And can I say to you in all boldness, if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit... I can bet your bottom dollar you do too. (laughs) That kind of goes with hankering, bottom dollar kind of stuff, okay? You need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. It is not an option. I mean, Jesus needed the Holy Spirit. It's how his life from start to finish was empowered. Look at this. I found this in a doctrinal book. It's my mom's book from when she was in college. I mentioned it to her a few weeks ago. And so I reference it week to week and just look through it and I glean from it. Uh, it's kind of a, almost like a family heirloom now. And it's her marks in there, not mine. But look what she marked in this. How dependent Jesus Christ was in his state of humiliation on the Holy Spirit. If he needed to depend solely on the Spirit, can we afford to do less? That's a good question. And then watch how the, the life of Christ is all uh, tied into the Spirit. Conceived by the Spirit. By the way, When the New Testament says that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, that's the same word as brooded in Genesis. It's a Greek form of it. But the Holy Spirit kind of nested, brooded over Mary. And what developed was life in her. So the Holy Spirit's the life-giving power of God. He was led by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, crucified in the power of the Spirit. Here are verses to substantiate every one of these. Raised by the Spirit, gave commandments to the church through the Spirit, bestowed the Holy Spirit. If, If the Holy Spirit was necessary for Christ... Can we think that we stand in any different situation? We need the Holy Spirit. Amen, church? So what do you say we do this today? Let's surrender ourselves 
to keeping in step with the Spirit. As he teaches us how not to sin, how to serve, as he illuminates the Scriptures, as he breathes life into those we're praying for who are lost, as he ignites the church, as in every way he actively manifests the presence and power of God, let us realize that is an urgent call to us. We are in dire, desperate need of him.